Welcome to this episode of the Parish Not Podcast. This is Rodney, your host, and for the next few minutes I will be talking about subjects you may or may not be aware of. Your input is always welcome, so feel free to send your comments, questions, or complaints to webmaster at parishnot.net. Again, the address is webmaster at parishnot.net. Here we go. Hello and welcome back to the Parish Not Podcast. Appreciate you sitting down, listening to this episode. I'm going to be talking about Easter and kind of the big picture of what Easter is really all about to me. And hopefully it'll be able to resonate a little bit in your own mind, your own hearts, as uh, you reflect on Easter and what it's all about. Some people grow up thinking it's all about candy and the Easter Bunny. Other people think see it as a religious ceremony. So I don't know where you stand on the issue, but I'm going to share with you my perspective of Easter and why it is so important and imperative that we have a proper understanding of it. So, you know, the Easter season of 2023 has gone as quickly as it came. And I just want to sit and chat briefly about that subject. Traditions are important as they can serve as mile markers along the journey we call life. Mile markers give us a visual indication of our location on the highway, and as well as in life, it enables us to fixate our attention on the destination. I want you to think back to your childhood Christmas around the tree. What was your childhood Christmases like? What kind of traditions did you establish? What was that special something that you or your family did? Who was that special someone that you spent those moments with? Was it putting the tree on the, or the star on top of the tree? Was it stringing the lights or maybe just hanging the ornaments? For me, when I was growing up, we used to put up our artificial tree after Thanksgiving. And believe it or not, the artificial tree was silver in color. And we had a rotating four-color wheel that lit up the tree every 60 seconds. It was something else. I've never seen anything like it since then. Also, when I think about traditions, I think about Thanksgiving. Did you have any traditions when it comes to Thanksgiving? Maybe it's turkey, ham, football, a gathering with the family or friends. Maybe that's your annual norm. I don't really know. But traditions allow us to look back with fond memories, and also look forward to a life we desire to create, which can both recapture past magic as well as create anew. For me, a tradition that I have warmly embraced centers around Easter time, a curious yet calculated time of the year that falls on different days in different months annually. Easter is always the first Sunday following the first full moon of the vernal equinox. And the celebration of Easter centers around the Jewish festival schedule that's called the Moedim. And that festival schedule does not follow our Gregorian-type calendar of counting days. Now, it was instituted by God during the days of Moses. It aligns perfectly with the Passover, the Exodus story, which was a foreshadow of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and thus enters my personal tradition of watching the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Yeah, that's my tradition. I watched The Passion of the Christ, that movie by Mel Gibson. For me, The Passion of the Christ serves as a reminder 
of the reason for the season as well as the big picture of what it's really truly all about. And that's what I want to talk with you about for the next few moments, the big picture. It's my sincere desire that at the end of this episode, you'll come away with at least a broad overview of what God and the Bible is all about and how Jesus and the Easter story factor in. As always, let's start where it all began, in the beginning. No, not at the beginning of creation story, as outlined in Genesis 1-1, but your creation story, the day you were born. When your parents began to pen the outline of your life. So there you are, wrapped in a swaddling cloth blanket, resting in the arms of your mom as your dad snaps a selfie of the three of you. What a happy moment indeed. Prior to this moment, mom and dad have made numerous preparations at home. The nursery's been set up, the walls are painted, the crib assembled with the five-pointed mobile dangling anxiously above. The rocking chair is made alongside a small nightstand with a baby monitor. While those physical accessories await your arrival, your Heavenly Father has been making preparations as well. You see, inside your little body there is a heart beating and a soul that has come to life. The moment you took your first breath you became a living soul, and in the middle of that soul is where your spirit resides, which is in touch with your Heavenly Father. An unobstructed spiritual dimension ensures creator and creation are perfect and has perfect communion. Now let's fast forward years later along your personal timeline. The exact date or time of year is unknown to you, but not to your Heavenly Father. Over the past years, your parents and parental figures have raised you with a certain set of values. Undoubtedly, like every responsible parent, they have attempted to instill the concept of right or wrong, teaching us to be polite and treat others nicely, showing us the ways of being kind, helping others while running away from telling lies, being mean, punching others as well as calling other people names. Man, did I do that. What they've been doing is an admirable attribution to the betterment of humanity. Raising a polite and respectful child can create a sense of gratitude in a set of proud parents. Yet behind the scenes, another scenario is evolving. Here we want to look internally to your heart and soul to see a war that is raging. As your physical and psychological self has begun maturing, you've been, quote, spreading your wings. While your parents have been telling you how to live, you are now beginning to think for yourself. What you're beginning to go through is what all humans throughout the ages of humanity have experienced. An internal conflict is about to take place that will change the course of your life for years to come. Internally, your moral reasoning has always been with you. On the day you were born, God placed His moral laws and precepts in your soul. His ways have been residing inside your spirit housed within your soul. Your brain has been developing on time and on cue with every doctor's visit you attended. Wonderfully, you are in the top percentile of your age group. Life is steaming ahead at full speed until that day, a moment in time when all humans are confronted with the age of accountability.
This is the day your mental reasoning matured to the point of making your own decisions. Here on this day, a date and time that only the Heavenly Father knows, your mental reasoning came into conflict with your moral reasoning. It was this day you were given a choice in your very, very young life. A moral choice that you will no longer do what is right. You will not choose to do what your parents and parental figures have been teaching you since you were a babe. Today is the day when you act by an act of your own will, predicated upon your own wants, your own will, your own desires. You will choose to do wrong, knowing it's wrong. At this very moment in time, you have become a sinner before God. Now, I can vividly remember the day I became a sinner in the eyes of God. I carried this memory with me for years, never understanding why it was there. Only when Holy Spirit showed me that I was not born a sinner, but became one, that it all began to make sense. Let me take you back. There I was, a young boy with my mom, in the Ben Franklin store on State Street. I don't know how old I was, but certainly not over five or six, I think. I grew up in a very small town in rural Iowa. This was your typical Midwestern town where everybody knows everyone. Where there is one bowling alley where the ladies hang out on Tuesday nights, and one tavern where the men do the same on Wednesday nights. Well, on this day, my mom and I were standing in line to pay. And I was holding her hand, and I turned over my right shoulder to see the candy display. In those days, it was an open display where anybody could reach into and grab their candy. Now, I was intrigued when I saw the black-colored mustache. I reached into the display and quickly placed it into my pocket. I knew it was wrong to take it, but I wanted it. My next memory is walking a few steps out of the store and my mom discovering the candied mustache. Immediately, we, re we retreated back into the store. And from that moment on, the memory ceases. It was at this moment in time, as I look back, that I believe the Holy Spirit was showing me this was the day I became a sinner in the eyes of God. From that moment on until October 1985, I was living a life as a sinner before God. That day, I broke his moral law and honestly, I've been perfecting the practice for many years to come. I laugh at it now, but it, it was a sad thing for sure. We all look back on our life with regret, remorse. But yet graciously, the Holy Spirit was faithfully executing the words of Jesus in John 12, where he said, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Yes, Holy Spirit was drawing me to Jesus all those years. And finally, on the island of Guam in October 1985, I repented of my sins and made the choice to follow Jesus. So, what about you? Do you remember the day you became a sinner? Well, that's okay if you don't, but understand this. That day did happen. If you have not repented from your sins, then you are still under the penalty of sin, and one day you'll have to pay for them. But I'm just getting ahead of myself a little bit. So let's revisit the time of in the beginning. This time we're going to go a little farther back. 
In Genesis 1-1, the Bible records that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That was a very long time ago for sure. You and I can only read the records about that event. But I'm going to let you in on a little secret. That wasn't the beginning. It was only the beginning of time. I want to take you back in eternity past. I want to share with you the beginning. When sin was originally conceived, well, that we know of anyway, in doing so, it will aid in our understanding of the big picture. First, let me introduce you to Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah was a Jewish leader who supervised the rebuilding of Jerusalem in the mid-5th century BC after his release from captivity by the Persian king Artaxerxes I. He also instituted ex extensive moral and liturgical reforms in rededicating the temple and the Jews back to Yahweh. In 445 BC, he wrote the book of Nehemiah. Now recorded in the ninth chapter, in the sixth verse, it says, You alone are the Lord. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in them. You give life to all things, and the host of heaven worships you. Here the prophet declares by the Holy Spirit that there was a moment when God created the angelic world. Now we know that God has revealed himself as eternal. He's always been. He always will be. But the scriptures teach that there was a moment in time when he created the angelic world. This verse in Nehemiah is just one of those examples. Also notice in this text that God created the heavens and the heaven of heavens. You know, and that's the question that I'm left to ponder is, where did God reside before he created the heaven of heavens and the angelic world? Well, I think that's a topic for a different podcast at a different time. But now once heaven and angels are created, their existence moves forward under the benevolent theocracy of God. Think about it. Everything is operating and functioning under the perfect will of God. That's the biblical revelations until something happened that changed all that. We get a glimpse into eternity past and that event when Holy Spirit inspires Ezekiel in 592 BC to record the following. In Ezekiel 28.11, we read, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lament against the king of Tyre, and tell him that this is what the Lord God says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty. Perfect. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every kind of precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald. Your mountings and settings were crafted in gold, prepared on the day of your creation. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for I have ordained you. You were on the holy mountain of God, and you walked among the fiery stones, 
From the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. By the vastness of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mountain of God, and I banished you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart grew proud of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I cast you to the earth. I made you a spectacle before kings. By the multitude of your iniquities and the dishonesty of your trade, you had profaned your sanctuaries. So I made fire come from within you, and it consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the eyes of all who saw you. All the nations who know you are appalled over you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. Here we see the principle of double reference. It follows along the lines of types and shadows, so you can have a, an understanding of what double reference is if you understand what types and shadows are. The hermeneutical principle of double reference refers to a current or real-time person or event and can also be applied to a past or future person or event as well. Now, in this passage, the pompous king of Tyre, in his own mind, has set himself up as God, indestructible and unaccountable to anybody. So the double reference principle here also mirrors Lucifer before his expulsion from before the throne of God. He had set himself up in his own mind as somebody greater than God. Yet back to verse 15, we see there was a moment in time when Lucifer knew right from wrong, and he chose wrong. Now, from this instance, we can see that Lucifer, as well as all of the angelic beings, they were created with personal sovereignty. They were created with a personal will. And they were created with the power of choice. We see that. And it's very clean very clearly seen here. But that's not the only example. Let's travel backwards in time, another 150 years, back to 740 BC. Now, once again, we're going to see a scene from eternity past interjected into this time-space continuum that we call human history. We're going to go back and look at the prophet Isaiah. And he also gives us a glimpse into eternity past when the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this. In your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah 14, starting in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the ground, O destroyers of the nation. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit down on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you will be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will stare. They will ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made the kingdoms tremble? Who turned the world into a desert and destroyed its cities? Who refused to let the captives return to their homes? Here it is we see Isaiah detailing for us what was in Lucifer's heart. And what were his intentions? He wanted to place himself on God's throne, yet he was told where his fate will land him. Yet the point here I want to leave with you 
is that Lucifer knew right from wrong, and he chose wrong. He was at an age to know better. Make no doubt about it, Lucifer is the author of sin and not God. Many people blame God for this, and they do it wrongly. Obviously, Satan is lying to them. God is not the author of sin. Lucifer is the author of sin. And now it is here where Lucifer has a name changed. His name is changed to Satan, the adversary. This is where it happened. Because of his sin, him wanting to usurp the authority of God, became an adversary. So, let's now shift scenes back to the beginning. In the beginning, the, in the beginning that most of you are familiar with, the Genesis 1.1. Let's read it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here we see the beginning of time. Time has now stepped into eternity. And the creation narrative begins to unfold as we read the book of Genesis. But I want us to fast forward to chapter 2, verse 7, where it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. Then the Lord God planted a garden east, towards the east, in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and tend it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat of it, you will certainly die. So Adam is created and placed in the garden. He's given a commandment not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see that Adam was created with a personal sovereignty, created with a personal will, and he had the power of choice. Let's pick up the story in chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You certainly will not die, for God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. So here we see the unfortunate yet necessary dealings of Adam and his power of choice. 
the moment in time found him on his day of accountability. He was of an age to know better. So thus far, we've gone back into eternity past to see when Lucifer became Satan, the adversary. We saw that he was a created being with personal sovereignty. He knew right from wrong, and at that moment in time, he came to a day of accountability. Then we saw Adam. He was a created being and knew God in his presence well. Adam himself was born with personal sovereignty. He was born with a personal will, and he was created with the power of choice. And he made a choice and sinned. An interesting passage in Isaiah is in reference to the yet coming Messiah. This passage lays out what is known as the concept of the age of accountability. Let's look at it. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz saying, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God, whether from the depths of Sheol or the heights of heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, O house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. By the time he knows enough to reject evil and choose good, he will eat curds and honey. For before the, no, the boy knows enough to reject evil and choose good, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So we have gone back in eternity past and looked at the foundational principle of accountability. We looked at the anthropology of the angels. They had the power of choice, personal sovereignty. They had personal will. And also we looked at the anthropology of humanity in the midst of Adam, born with the power of choice, personal sovereignty. He had a personal will. But here we see the mental skin and bones wrapped around the introduction of the age of accountability. And that's applicable to all of humanity. Every human being that was born after Adam and Eve are susceptible to the age of accountability. Remember when Adam and Eve ate, after they sinned, then their eyes were opened. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here Isaiah is talking about when, when the Savior is born, when Emmanuel comes, he's going to grow. And he will grow to a point where he knows enough to reject evil and choose good. So here we have the predicate, the underlying understanding that each human being grows in a mental and moral composition. And it comes to the point in humanity where we make a choice. We have an age of accountability. And it's while we see in eternity passing in Adam, and from Adam all the way up until the Messiah, 
we understand the principles there, but there is really no foundational teaching or no cornerstone to say that there is an actual age of accountability. And it, it is introduced with the prophecy of the Messiah. Now, this is what you have to understand, that Jesus grew to a point where he knows enough to reject evil and choose good. And that's what we see exemplified throughout the life of the, of the Messiah, according to the scriptures. He was confronted and tempted to sin, but he was without sin. He made a choice. He made a different choice. He made the choice not to sin. And we see this exemplified in his wilderness temptations in Mark 4, I'm sorry, Matthew 4, Mark 3, and Luke 4. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold firmly to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at the time of our need. Now granted, there is an ongoing debate in Christendom about the peccability slash impeccability of Christ, whether he could have sinned because he was man, or there's no way he could have sinned because he was God. Um, people rationalize, well, why was he tempted if he couldn't make the choice to sin or make the choice not to sin? Uh, so could he sin because he was man? Yes. But could he sin because he's God? No. So it goes back and forth, and many people are debating that issue. I'll leave that for another time. What is safe to say is that the age of accountability described in Isaiah 7, at least the concept of it, is also touched upon by Paul in Romans chapter 2. Let me read it for us. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearer of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, instinctively perform the requirements of the law, these, though not having the law, are law to themselves, in that they show the works of the law written in their hearts, their conscience testifying that their thoughts alternately accusing them or else defending them. On the day when, According to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of mankind through Jesus Christ. That was certainly a mouthful. And what I want to draw your attention to is he makes a distinction, like a slash. On one side of the slash, he's talking to the Jews. And then he transitions into the Gentiles. And of course, the Gentiles of that day. They're not followers of the Mosaic law. They're not followers of the Jewish traditions. They're Gentiles. But Paul goes and says, hey, Gentiles have the law written on their hearts already instinctively. And it's within that paradigm. It's within the anthropology of mankind. It's within their spirit. It's that moral reasoning. It's called their conscience. And thus we are back to the conscience. That agency of moral reasoning God placed within all of us the moment we became a living soul upon our entry into this people's planet called Earth. 
Paul also instructed the Christians in Rome. In chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So here in a nutshell, all of humanity is without excuse because we have a conscience that God has given to us from the moment that we were born and we grew up mental reasoning, developing our brain, our mind, already moral reasoning is resident. And when mental reasoning and moral reasoning grow to a point where there's a conflict, humanity has always chosen to sin against God. And humans are without excuse. They can't stand before God and say, I never knew you. I never knew what happened. Well, the, the writer, the Apostle Paul, told the Romans, hey, you're without excuse because God has made His himself known and made it evident to each one of us by placing himself in our conscience. Rodney, I thought this was going to be about Easter. Well, this is what leads up to the Easter story. I don't have to recount much because you've heard it from your childhood. Remember the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so? Well, that's true. Yes, Jesus does love humanity. God does love humanity. For God so loved the world that he gave, dot, dot, dot. And he's made a way for us to have fellowship restored to the God of heaven, to be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. God sent Jesus into the world to die a death on a cross to pay for the sins of mankind. But that's not the best part. The best part is the Easter story. You see, Jesus rose from the grave three days later, proving that he was all and everything he said he was, as well as all that he shared about the Father, the kingdom of God, as well as the kingdom of heaven. Woven into the fabric of that story is how the blood of Jesus purchased slash ransomed mankind from the grips of Satan and sin, thus destroying the power of sin, that sin that Satan conceived of in eternity past. That very scenario we read about in eternity past is what has now been rectified. All of humanity can be free from the penalty of sin if they repent. As they seek the kingdom and his righteousness, they will be progressively freed from the power of sin. Once they die and are raised at the first resurrection to eternally experience freedom from the presence of sin. This is what the resurrection has accomplished. This is what the Easter story is all about. And now you have an understanding of what I believe is the big picture. Thank you for investing your time listening to the Parish Not Podcast. The Parish Not Podcast is the media outreach of the Parish Not Project, and you can learn more by going to www.parishnotproject.net. 
This is your host, Rodney, reminding you to get right or get left. <laughs>